On February the 6th, 2022, Queen Elizabeth II became the first British monarch to celebrate a platinum jubilee, marking 70 years of service, reigning over the United Kingdom and British Commonwealth. While it's true that in many ways the British monarchy has become an emblematic office and governance has long rested with Parliament, her platinum jubilee remains an extraordinary, historic achievement. Many monarchies around the globe have fallen during her lifetime, and many others fell in the generations preceding her ascension to the throne. What is it that caused the British throne to endure while the thrones of France, Germany, China, Russia, and other nations disappeared? With any lasting institution, the source of longevity and success can often be traced back to its founding. The reality is that the royal line now ruling over the British throne traces its roots much further into history than most realize. Stay tuned as we explore the real history of the British monarchy. England traces its history for well over a thousand years. Many varying dynasties have reigned over England since the days of Alfred the Great in 871. The term dynasty describes a succession of monarchs from the same line of descent, from the same family. In England's history, there have been many dynasties. However, the current dynasty is very different. England was not the first nation to be ruled by this dynasty. In fact, this dynasty existed even before England was a nation. How could this be? We'll begin our story not with Queen Elizabeth II, but with her namesake, Queen Elizabeth I. Daughter of the famed Henry VIII, the so-called Virgin Queen reigned for 44 years and 128 days. Queen Elizabeth's reign was pivotal in forging the English identity. Pope Sixtus famously said of her, She certainly is a great queen, and were she only a Catholic, she would be our dearly beloved. Just look how well she governs. She is only a woman, only mistress of half an island, and yet she makes herself feared by Spain, by France, by the Empire, by all. Why was she called the Virgin Queen? Because she remained unmarried and did not produce an heir to the throne. Her death in the spring of 1603 left a cavernous hole atop the governance of England, as she left no heir to inherit it and to continue her legacy. You've likely heard the phrase that nature abhors a vacuum, and there are few areas where this rings more accurate than regarding power. As she grew ill, the need for a strong leader became more apparent. A legitimate monarch needed to be found that could keep the nation unified. The answer was found by looking to the north. King James VI of Scotland had ascended the Scottish throne at the age of 13 months. Four different regencies had retained power until he began to establish control in 1578. By 1603, he was a very experienced ruler. He was invited to rule a unified nation of Scotland and England serving as the successor to the Queen Elizabeth I. The Encyclopedia Britannica highlights how he was seen by many of his new subjects after being given the English throne. But James I was viewed with suspicion by his new subjects. Centuries of hostility between the two nations had created deep enmities, and these could be seen in English descriptions of the king. In them he was characterized as hunchbacked and ugly, with a tongue too large for his mouth and a speech impediment that obscured his words. As James VI of Scotland became James I of England, he faced many difficulties, including a failed assassination attempt as part of the famed gunpowder plot. This hardly seemed like the establishment of a lasting dynasty, 
And yet, more than 400 years following his ascension to the throne, it is one of his descendants, named after the queen whose death brought him the English throne, that still finds herself in power. As fascinating as this history is, it still does not describe the beginning of this line of kings. It stretches further back, and we must pursue the ancestry of James VI of Scotland in order to continue our quest to find the foundation of this line of leaders. This line of Scottish kings stretches back further than the nation of Scotland, including Kenneth MacAlpine, who is often called the first king of Scotland. Before Scotland became the nation we know today, the western portion was called Dalriada, while the eastern portion was Pictland. Kenneth MacAlpine ascended to the throne of Dalriada and then united with Pictland as the Kingdom of Alba. The true legacy of Kenneth MacAlpine is that he founded a dynasty that would see the unification of the Pictish and Gaelic kingdoms evolve into a new entity, the Kingdom of Alba. This embryonic kingdom would become the country we now know as Scotland. Kenneth MacAlpine's lineage cannot be traced in a direct line. The throne often passed through brother rather than children, and at times it seemed that a new lineage was beginning. Yet in those instances, the lineage could still be traced through marriage via a daughter, and MacAlpine's line can be tracked all the way to James VI of Scotland, and thus James I of England, and all the way to Queen Elizabeth II. But Kenneth MacAlpine did not spring up out of nowhere. His own claims of kingship were passed down to him. An Irish manuscript from approximately A.D. 1100 called Rawlinson 502, records the secession of kings from Ireland, which resulted in the reign of Kenneth MacAlpine. Please bear with my poor pronunciation. Sinead, son of Alpine, now known as Kenneth MacAlpine, son of Euchid, son of Aidfind, son of Domingart, son of Donald Breck, son of Euchid Boyd, son of Aidan, son of Gobrin, son of Domingart, son of Fergus Moore. Here we have a dynasty of Irish kings leading to a dynasty of Scottish kings and ultimately the British monarchy. James I of England would not be the last King James to inherit the throne. James II in 1689 visited the historic city of Kilkenny in Ireland. He was addressed not as a foreign king, but as a fellow countryman returning home, matching the history we've outlined. Whereas the honor of Our Majesty's pleasure was unexpected, so are our expectations of joy unspeakable. Never was a King of England so kind to this country. Never was this country so kind to a British Prince. We conducted or sent a Fergus to Scotland. We welcome in James II, the undoubted heir of Fergus, by the lineal descent of 110 crowned heads, with that boast of antiquity to which no other monarch of the universe can aspire. We acquit Scotland for the principle and interest of 1,300 years by receiving Your Majesty, in whose person we consider no stranger, we behold no conqueror, but our own blood restored to us after the absence of so many centuries, a son of Fergus, King of Ireland, and actually present in Ireland, which verifies an old proverb of ours that Avarith we should have about this time a king of our own, and continue under him and his issue a most happy nation forever. The Irish recognized where that line of the throne had come from. In a few moments, we'll look at some ancient prophecies in an attempt to trace this lineage back even further than Fergus Moore. This information is not trivial. 
It relates a historical context to the geopolitical scene before us today. The late John O'Gwyn compiled an extraordinary account of the history of the British descended peoples. His writings, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy, is a compelling read and well worth taking the time to review. Call and request your free copy today. Welcome back. We've been exploring the lineage of kings and queens from Queen Elizabeth II all the way back to Fergus Moore of Ireland around the year 500. As one could imagine, the records for this time period are not always the most detailed and clear. In this portion of our program, we're going to jump much further back in time and examine several passages from the Bible which relate to a special kingly lineage. As the end of his life drew near, the patriarch Jacob, also known as Israel, called his sons together. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. What was to follow was not a description that those sons would live to see fulfilled. Jacob's claim was that this information was for a time that he called the last days. His words to one son in particular are of relevance to our program today. To Judah he stated, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter is symbolic of governance. In fact, the sovereign scepter is an important inclusion in the British crown jewels. The timing here indicates that a scepter would reside with Judah until Shiloh comes. Strong's Concordance provides this definition for the word Shiloh. Perhaps he whose it is, a messianic title. The scepter would remain until the rightful owner of that scepter would come. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. However, the next sentence shows that it could not be referring to his first coming, as no nation was brought into obedience of him. This can only be referring to his future second coming. What are the implications of this promise? That a line of kings would come from the tribe of Judah that would last until the return of Christ, when the true king would take possession of the scepter, becoming ruler. The modern nation of Israel, currently in the Middle East, has no king. The Jewish peoples scattered abroad have no king, so how could this be possible? Let's keep looking. The Bible does describe an important line of kings to come out of Judah. That would be a logical starting point. Israel's first king was a man named Saul, who the Bible tells us was rejected by God as king. Samuel, a prophet who had been used to anoint Saul as king, was instructed to anoint a new king from the tribe of Judah, a man named David. God would then give David an extraordinary promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This promise is reiterated in the Psalms. My covenant will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. These are some very strong words from one who claims to have the power to bring them to pass. It's beyond question that the Davidic line had remarkable staying power. During the reign of David's grandson, starting about 931 BC, 
a civil war split the nation of Israel into two kingdoms. The kingly line remained over the nation of Judah. This line persisted as major powers rose and fell, oftentimes threatening the kingdom. However, most scholars would point to Zedekiah, who was captured in 586 BC and later died in captivity as the last of this line. At a time when Jerusalem's fall was imminent, Jeremiah recorded a reaffirmation of this grand promise. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This promise is of particular importance. It's given at a time when it seems impossible for it to be fulfilled. Judah's enemies are great, and the city of Jerusalem was vulnerable. Only a short time later, Jerusalem would fall. Zedekiah and a small contingent fled the city, but were overtaken and brought before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes in Riblah. The king of Babylon also killed all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. The 52nd chapter of Jeremiah reveals that Zedekiah would later die in captivity. This is often pointed to as the end of the Davidic line. If so, it would have seen 20 monarchs ascend to the throne over a period of more than 400 years. That would make it among the most successful dynasties in history. However, that's not the promise which we've seen given on at least four separate occasions. If Zedekiah marked the end of the Davidic dynasty, then those promises of a throne that would last until he whose it is, Christ, returns to claim it, would have failed. Remarkably, there is another aspect of the story which we need to uncover. The man who chronicled the final promise of an everlasting throne, as well as the demise of Zedekiah and his sons, was given a peculiar commission which must be addressed. In the first chapter of Jeremiah, we are told that God knew him from the womb, even before birth, that God planned a special purpose for Jeremiah to fulfill. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. This commission includes three objectives. He was set over the nations and kingdoms. He was to root out and to pull down. He was to build and to plant. The book of Jeremiah contains many prophecies directed to different nations, including Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, and Babylon. These messages were the fulfillment of his first objective. For the second, he would witness the kingdom of Judah being rooted out and pulled down. It was destroyed and many of its inhabitants dragged into captivity. He also saw what appeared to be the end of the Davidic line. What then did it mean to build and to plant? We'll examine this last objective and how it relates to Queen Elizabeth when we return. Please take this opportunity to request your free copy of the United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. This booklet examines many promises made in the Bible and how they relate to various nations today and into the future. It's an eye-opening read and an invaluable source of information. On today's program, we've been looking at two long-lasting and successful dynasties. We've traced the lineage of Queen Elizabeth II all the way back through the rulers of England, Scotland, and Ireland. We've also looked at several promises included in the Bible, which indicate that King David would start a line of kings that would rule until the return of Christ. However, we've come to a roadblock in that lineage with the death of King Zedekiah and his sons. 
Prior to the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah had proclaimed a message from God that the city would fall. His message was not well received and he was thrown into prison. This is where we pick up the story and ask what was meant by the third aspect of his commission, the instruction to build and to plant. At the time of the invasion, that had not yet been fulfilled and Jeremiah found himself in prison. Yet Jeremiah found favor in the eyes of the occupying force. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced doom on this place. And now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. This commander offered Jeremiah safety. But Jeremiah still had a task to complete. The Babylonian conquest left the remnant of Judah in turmoil, and after several struggles for power, a group arose which led many away into Egypt. Jeremiah and his chief aide and scribe, Baruch, were among those taken into Egypt, and they were not the only ones. But Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all nations where they had been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. So they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they went as far as Tapanese. This passage reveals how the Davidic dynasty survived Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty. While Zedekiah's sons were killed, his daughters escaped along with Jeremiah into Egypt. This is the last we directly read of the daughters. We know they are with Jeremiah in Egypt, but what happens next is not directly described to us. It's about this time that it would be helpful to review a short but powerful message given through the prophet Ezekiel. After using the visual of a majestic cedar tree whose topmost branches are cropped by an eagle, verse 12 makes it clear that it describes the events which were to occur during the life of Jeremiah. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Indeed, the king of Babylon went to Jerusalem and took its king and princes and led them with him to Babylon. In contrast to the eagle representing Babylon, cropping the topmost branches, Ezekiel reveals that God would also crop a branch for himself for his own purpose. Thus says the Lord God, I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one and will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth bows, and bear fruit, and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort, in the shadow of its branches they will dwell." To understand this passage, I'd like to read from the booklet being offered on today's program, The United States and Great Britain and Prophecy. Here John O'Gwin explains these verses with clarity. We have already seen that the top branch of the cedar symbolized Judah's last king, Zedekiah. A twig coming out from that branch would be one of his children. As we have also seen, his sons were killed. This tender twig must clearly refer to one of his daughters. God talks of her being taken to a high mountain, used in Bible prophecy to symbolize a nation, where she would be planted and would grow into a great tree. 
This shows that she would marry and produce offspring, and that the dynasty would continue. Also note, while David's line had been reigning over Judah, it would now be replanted, ruling over Israel. We've seen how the king's daughters survived the fall of Jerusalem, while their brothers were led off to Babylon and killed. They escaped into Egypt with Jeremiah, who had been commissioned not only to root out and pull down, but also to build and to plant. This tender twig that had been uprooted would be planted elsewhere, a transferal of power that would preserve David's lineage. If God's promise holds true, that lineage is still present on this earth today. Not only is it present, but it is ruling over a nation descended from ancient Israel. Is it within reason to speculate that Jeremiah and the king's daughters somehow ended up in the Emerald Isle of Ireland, where we later find a dynasty of rulers including Fergus Moore, Kenneth McAlpine, James I, and Elizabeth II? While we have to be careful in putting too much stock into fables, when it comes to periods of history where there is not much information available, and where what we might brush off as nice stories match what we read in the biblical narrative, we should take notice. In 2000, an article was published in Tomorrow's World magazine by Dr. Douglas Winnale titled Behind the Mists of Ireland. He compiles many of the fables regarding Irish history and how they relate to our program today. One of the most amazing legends in Irish history links the biblical prophet Jeremiah with the Emerald Isle. Oxford-educated Mary Rogers recounts several versions of the Jeremiah story. Each version tells of Jeremiah fleeing from Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian conquest. One account makes Jeremiah flee to Ireland with Teotephi, eldest daughter of Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the last king to occupy the throne of Judah. Other accounts have Jeremiah and a princess or princesses and a man named Barak or Baruch leaving Egypt for the Isles of the West. Although this might sound quite fanciful to our modern ears, it fits directly with the scriptures. In the Bible, we learn that when Jerusalem fell, Jeremiah escaped along with his scribe Baruch and the king's daughters to Egypt where they resided at the city of Tapanese. The Bible reveals little else about this group of refugees. There are no clear statements about where they may have gone from Egypt. However, there are clues, both in the scriptures and in history, especially the history of Ireland. Those watching this video on YouTube can find a link to the full article in the description below. If you're watching on TV, search for The Real History of the British Monarchy on the Tomorrow's World YouTube channel and you'll be able to find it. Are these legends themselves enough to prove that the Davidic line became the British monarchy that we see today? Perhaps you're not persuaded that the line of kings could have been transplanted from Judah to Ireland to Scotland to England. But let's review all that we've seen today. Before the Israelite nation came into existence, God made a promise that was relayed through Jacob that a line of kings would descend from one of his sons, Judah, and that line of kings would continue until the future return of Jesus Christ. Centuries later, a man of the tribe of Judah, David, ascends to the throne over the entire nation of Israel. The throne passes to his son, and eventually his grandson, before a civil war tears the nation into two separate kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. David's descendants continue to reign over the kingdom of Judah until Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian army captures Jerusalem and takes King Zedekiah captive, killing all of Zedekiah's sons. The king's daughters survive and escape into Egypt, accompanied by a man named Jeremiah, who had been given a special commission to both tear down and to build up.
A prophecy in Ezekiel depicts the dynasty as a great cedar and describes a tender twig being transplanted from Judah and establishing a dynasty over Israel. Legends emerge of Jeremiah and several princesses arriving in Ireland about this time. While we don't have the time to explain the ancient origins of the Irish, Scottish, and English peoples, they are outlined in the booklet we're offering today, The United States and Great Britain and Prophecy. They are the modern descendants of Israel, which is where the tender twig was prophesied to be planted. From Ireland, we know that a line of rulers emerged that was then transplanted to Scotland, and that after the death of Queen Elizabeth I, the Scottish king, James VI, became James I of England and ruled over the United Kingdom of England and Scotland. These ancient promises explain why the British monarchy survived while so many others failed. The ability to trace this lineage all the way back to David does rely on the existence of legends and stories in Irish history. But it is relevant to note that we don't see such legends of Jeremiah and the king's daughters arriving in Germany, or Italy, Ethiopia, or Nigeria. The only nation which has these legends is the nation from which we can trace the lineage from Fergus Moore all the way down to Queen Elizabeth II. This explains why the throne of Britain has survived and thrived while many others vanish. Having been transplanted three times, the Bible still describes one final transfer of power for this dynastic line. That is found in the book of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That final transfer will occur when Shiloh, he whose it is, the rightful owner, will return and inherit that great throne and scepter which have been passed down for millennia. This final transfer will usher in a time of unparalleled peace and prosperity. Join us next week as Gerald Weston, Stuart Bohovich, and I continue to give you the good news of this fantastic future, a time we call tomorrow's world.